Hi everyone. Before we start today's show, we want to note and remark on the passing of one of our listeners, David Harmsworth. David came to the show over the past year, wrote to it several times, including details of his battle with cancer. Some of you might even remember his listener emails, and also corresponded with me privately many more times. As a fellow Davo aficionado, I had a lot of time for this, but even more than that, David was just a really pleasant guy to talk to in general. So it was with a heavy heart that we learned of his passing earlier this month from a mutual friend, and indeed a real-life friend of David's, Mark Douglas, who particularly keen-eared listeners will know is one of my childhood Doctor Who chums from back in the 80s and who now lives in the UK. It's a small world. I wanted to say all of this before the credits roll in order to pass on our condolences to David's friends and family and so that we can dedicate this episode to David and put out a show of the sort that he used to love to tune into and would comment on afterwards. Sadly though, not this time. Wherever you are now, David, this show's for you. We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It- doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And it is September of 2023. Our topic tonight is violence in Who. Rob, how are you? Dave, I'm very well and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, and thank you to Dwayne Bunny from the Sirens of Audio podcast, who filled the chair whilst I was away last month. It was great to just be a a listener. I was, in fact, on the Eurostar going to Brussels to check out the uh, location filming for Secret Army, as well as actually do other things. I didn't just go to see the (laughs) Lacanode from Secret Army, but, but no, it was great to hear that, so thank you to Dwayne for... Uh, doing that. It is September. The footy finals are underway. By the time this episode goes out, we will know if my beloved Carlton are in the grand final. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. It is. It is. Look, before we get into the show, a couple of quick comments. First of all, a reminder for our Australian listeners, especially those in Melbourne and Sydney, that the Sirens of Audio event with Katie Manning is just around the corner. 14th of October in Sydney, 22nd of October in Melbourne. I spoke to Phil just this afternoon and he said tickets for the Melbourne dinner are almost sold out. Mm -hmm. Um, But otherwise, there are plenty of tickets available for the days. And in Sydney, the dinner will include celebrations for Katie's birthday, including with her family. So great reason to sign up. Look, these are very good events. Uh, If you're somebody who's in the area and you're umming and ahhing about whether to go, all I will say to you is they are very friendly events. I went to one in Sydney and it was a great crowd. I know a lot of the people going to to the one in Melbourne. It's also going to be a great crowd, a friendly crowd. So if you're in any doubt... Do get along. And and more than anything, I know, Rob, you and me and the guys over at 42 to Doomsday have regularly talked about wanting to do more of these fan-run events for the fans. Uh, It's happening, and look, we're passionately supporting them. Yes. If you're only 
experience with this kind of thing comes through the big pop culture type expos, this is the absolute antithesis to that. So if you don't like that, you'll probably really like this. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, check out the Sirens of Audio. Just Google Sirens of Audio and the website will be the first thing that comes up. Rob, we need to crack into it. We're talking about violence in Doctor Who. It's a big topic. I think it's an interesting topic, but a couple of things first, including, I believe, an Apple podcast review. Yes, before we get to the news and short topics, I do have an Apple Podcasts review. This comes from Bottom Gun via Apple Podcasts on the 20th of August. And the heading is Intelligent Analysis 5 Stars. It runs, loving this podcast. Like the best criticism, it manages to be as entertaining as the show it's discussing. And sometimes, when it comes to the JNT era, considerably more so. (laughs) It has also opened my eyes to the pleasures of the Hartnell era. Long may it continue. Thank you very much, Bottom Gun, for sending that in. Look, I was listening to the podcast review that you and Dwayne read out last month. And, Mm. you know, we don't do this for any other reason than we enjoy it but it is really really lovely to hear people just really enjoy what we spew out yes i i'm always amazed that somewhere in the world in some magical location that i've never been to our voices are coming out of a speaker somewhere or some headphones that's weird to me yeah someone someone somewhere in you know some bizarre part of the world is shouting at us about how wrong we are and that's just (laughs) That's just amazing. But look, uh, the fact that Bottom Gun has really discovered the pleasures of the Hartnell era through listening to us is just a really wonderful thing. And they, yeah, just just really nice. Just really yeah. nice. Yeah. And I've got, to, I've got to ask, Bottom Gun, if you're out there, is Bottom Gun a reference to Astro Boy? Because he had a Bottom Gun, didn't he, Dave? He had a machine gun in his bum. Oh, that's a good idea. I wonder if it is an Astro Boy reference. I hope so. I really do. Uh, Rob, we're throwing out the running order for a moment here because we have breaking news, stop presses, uh, (laughs) an announcement on a topic you've been following. Rob, go back to your days in the newsroom and break some news. Thank you, Dave. Yes, this is really breaking news, folks. I was sitting down to dinner thinking, oh, in an hour or so, I'll be recording with Dave. And a a Facebook messenger message came through from a listener called Alex. And he said, hi, I thought you guys would be interested in the following news I just received regarding the collection releases in Australia. Your videos on it were really informative. Thanks. So Alex might know us through uh, YouTube, it seems. And the news that Alex has brought to us is confirmation that the ongoing distribution of BBC Studios product will be handled by Madman Entertainment. And Dave, Madman Entertainment is a mob that we have talked about on the podcast as being a great fit for Doctor Who. Yeah, this is absolutely back to the future. Uh, Madman is now a big, big import company when it comes to movies and television and um, hard, hard media. But... As we've discussed on the podcast before, I and Richard and Mark and a bunch of us down here, we remember going along to Tim's little shop in a sort of a warehouse above a shop somewhere in the back outskirts of inner Melbourne where he would import tapes for all sorts of, you know, different collectibles and Doctor Who was one, a great guy, a great marketer, always looked after his customers. He's the one who brought the crate of Doctor Who telemovies in in 1996 and half of Melbourne fandom was standing there in the dark at a cold winter's night as he just pulled these things out of the crate and took our 40 bucks, you know, just just one <laughs> after the other. And so, look, it's great that once again uh, the Madman is 
looking after Doctor Who fans. It is a great fit. It's one we thought could happen. And it's just good to know that Doctor Who on hard media is going to have a home in Australia again. Yeah, that's right. So this this fella has real form with Doctor Who and many other genre shows. Of course, Madman were big into anime for a while. That's spun off now into its own thing, but Madman is still distributing tons of entertainment. This comes into effect from the 25th of September, and if anyone does want to uh, pop them an email, pop it through to purchase orders at madman.com.au and they'll be able to answer any questions you might have probably when season 20 coming out. Yeah, absolutely. So look, good news. Um, it looked for a while as though we weren't going to be getting the Blu-rays in Australia. Now it looks as though they've got a home and a home that genuinely has a record as uh, being a friend to Doctor Who fans. So that's great news. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, a piece of news from me, and this is one of those bewildering ones that sort of comes across our desk <laughs> when we're looking for news stories, courtesy often of the Radio Times, and this is RTD smashing down a fan controversy that really was never a controversy, and this is the fan view, theory, take, whatever you like to call it, mm-hmm. that the RTD2 era is going to be erasing the Jodie Whittaker era, that it's going to be as though it never existed, that <laughs> they're not having... Jodie's costume on David Tennant because they just want her out of the way. She hasn't been on enough of the promotional material. She doesn't get the DWN covers. It's all about David Tennant. And RTD has come out and sort of very clearly just mocked this as nonsense and I think basically said there will be room enough for Jodie in the anniversary. Yeah, and look, it reminded me very much in Star Wars fandom, there's been for the longest time as the Ahsoka show has been coming and we're currently watching the Ahsoka show at present, there's been a push in some parts of fandom that, oh, Dave Filoni is going to retcon the sequel trilogy and he's going to do it via using the world between worlds. And if anyone watches Ahsoka and Star Wars Rebels and things, they'll know what I'm talking about. And that too was just something fans made up. They would like the sequel trilogy to be erased, so they make up this story that some new content is going to do it. And it's exactly the same thing here. They would love the Jodie Whittaker series to be erased and the Chibnall era. And so they just make up this rumour that, oh yeah, RTD is going to erase it. Like, oh my God, RTG must just sit there and shake his head and think, what is this nonsense? Yeah, I mean, I mean every new Doctor's era works hard to stamp its mark on the show and, and become an era in its own right. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're erasing or forgetting about the previous one. I, I mean, you know, Sylvester McCoy becoming the Doctor didn't erase Colin Baker. Um, no. Yeah, look, bizarre nonsense. RTD shut it down. Uh, moving on, because you've got some uh, casting news, Rob. I do. A nice quick one here. Earlier in the month, Miriam Margulies's uh, autobiography dropped. And while the media did its usual thing of scouring it for celebrity scuttlebutt, and I think her thoughts on Steve Martin during Little Shop of Horrors got a particularly good run on that count, I noticed a Doctor Who fan who got out there on Twitter and had found this section, and I'm going to read this section from the book. Miriam says, I was delighted to find I had an in on the fan convention circuit. It was Sylvester McCoy, Doctor Who Mark Seven, who got me going. He told me about travelling around the world, being paid to appear at events called Comic Con, Awesome Con and Chicago TARDIS, meeting science fiction buffs and being photographed with them. I rather like the sound of that. Of course, I wasn't in Doctor Who then, but I am now. Just wait till you meet the meep. And... Blow me down, Dave. Within a day or so of this 
getting out there, the BBC released confirmation that Miriam is indeed playing what they call the Meep and what readers of the 1980s comic strip of the Star Beast call Beep the Meep. So expect, I don't know, some sort of cutesy, maybe sing-song kind of voice for the Meep. I'm, I'm really quite looking forward to this. Look, I'm not hugely familiar with her work, uh, but I do know her as Lady Whiteadder from the Blackadder episode Beer. <laughs> yes, And yes. I just hope that that's not the voice she's doing it in. I'm sure it's not, Dave. I'm sure it's not. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And on to our short topics. I've got a uh, probably more of a medium-sized topic just to kick us off with, Rob, because as you <laughs> alluded to at the start, I have been overseas. I've got a couple of yes. Doctor Who-related things just to chat about there. Look, a couple I'll go through quickly, then I want to sort of talk a bit more about uh, one of them. Uh, I was overseas in Europe for four weeks. I did visit a couple of Doctor Who settings. So for the first time when I was in Paris, I went to the Conciergerie Prison, which of course is where a large amount of the Reign of Terror was set. So I got to see the cell where Barbara and Ian and Susan were, were held. And um, I've got to say, in the display at the museum there, they do have what looks exactly like the Doctor's medallion that he wears when he's dressed up as the French official. Oh, really? In that story. It looks just like it's so that was a nice little moment of frisson for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, for the first time as an adult, go to the Louvre. And mm-hmm. I did see the Mona Lisa. It is uh, uh, very different to what it was like back in the days of City of Death. Um, very, very crowded. I was fortunate enough to have booked a skip the line ticket for the Louvre, which meant I was only in the queue for 50 minutes. Wow. Um, those without were up to three and a half hours in the queue. This is peak season, though, in Europe, isn't it? It, it was peak season, 35 degrees, Paris in summer, all yeah. lovely. Um, so, y- yes, but um, look, I did get to do that, and I was I, I, I admit I was sort of wandering around Paris for that day. I had sort of just running through Paris, <laughs> I'm running through Paris, just going through my head. So, Did you have a little good. jog? I didn't have a little jog. It was 35 okay. degrees, Rob. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and, and look, I have been to Culloden Moor before, but when I was in Scotland, I did go there again because it's been a long time and they've updated the museum there. So I did check that out, of course, being the location of the Highlanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the wonderful things about going to the UK is I get to catch up sometimes with some of the friends we've made from podcasting. And in this case, I got to have lunch again at a lovely little pub in the Cotswolds with uh, Matt Barber from the Strangers in Space podcast. Matt met before but this was a great chance to sit down with him over some uh, you know some British pub grub and just nice. have a little chat and for the first time I got to meet in person Suki Kark from a number of different podcasts but I know him best from Trek This Out yes. um, he was very kind enough to invite me to visit him in Birmingham and I hadn't been to Birmingham before and he showed me around his community he introduced me to some people and just Again, we just had a really fun chat, and it's a shame I had to sort of be, um, you know, another sort of two hours away by dusk that day because it was it was great to chat with both of them. So, um, you know, hi to Matt and Suki, and thanks for catching up with me while I was over there. A nice offshoot of podcasting, actually meeting the people behind them. It is, it is, it is always yeah. really, really nice. Um, but look, the big thing I wanted to mention is I did go to a number of Doctor Who locations some filming locations and Ah. it was really really interesting the probably the big one that i've been wanting to do for a long time is port merion which of course is where the mask of mandraga was was set uh tripods did some filming there brides and revisited did some filming there the prisoner i suspect is the thing it's most famous 
for Absolutely. having had film there. But it was really fascinating to see that. It is right in the top left-hand corner of Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, to get there, I did have to drive over Snowdonia, which was a difficult but spectacular drive. And Snowdonia, is, of course, is where The Death Zone on Gallifrey was filmed and uh, Tibet from The Abominable Snowman was filmed. And look, I didn't get to go to the exact locations there because... If you read the Doctor Who location guide, it's sort of, you know, go to this intersection, turn left and walk about five minutes into the moor and you'll be at the hill where the Cyberman was. It's like, no, I'm I'm not quite doing that. What was challenging about it, Dave? Was it the road width, road surface? Um, road width, um, very, very narrow. Mm. Mist coming in, drizzle, starting yeah. to get dark. Um, you know, for a large part of it, one side of the road is a cliff. So it's, right. uh, it, is, it is sort of, not, not difficult in the sense of physically, but just mentally you have to be really on so you channeled your best richard hammond and soldiered on no no i was i was much more james may for that one i've got to say oh okay much more cautious <laughs> um Great. but but it's fascinating as you, as you drive through snowdonia you look at the scenery and you go i am in the death zone it, it yeah, just looks yeah. like the death zone so that was that was really cool but port marion was was great it was not quite what i expected but it, it was a bit smaller and than I expected. I guess, you know, I always knew that it was a a, a concept village and I hadn't realised just how much that was the case and how completely unfunctional uh, mm. Port Merion actually is. And it's fascinating to walk around because in The Mask of Mandragora, the production team goes to a great deal of effort to make it look like it is functional. So mm-hmm. the facade where Count Frederico stands when he's having the doctor executed, they they try and film it to make it look like that's the facade of a palace. But in reality, it is just a facade. There's nothing behind it. Um, <laughs> in contrast, because I've now gone back and I've started rewatching The Prisoner for the first time in about 20 years, uh, and they lean into the dysfunctionality of the village and that, you know, buildings don't work and they don't look right and they don't, mm. although, you know, it, it, that, that's that's what they're going for. Um, yeah. So, yeah, interesting to walk around that. And look, just, just, just a beautiful place to walk around. I did discover that between Port Merion and Carnarvon Castle, which I was wanting to go to and, in fact, did go to, is the location of the Eye of Orion from the Five Doctors. And so uh, there's a there's a house there. There's a garden. In the garden is the set of stairs that Richard Herndl is walking down before he's time scooped uh, to the death zone. And then I had to ask the the, the, the girl behind the counter, um, where, where, where's the um where's the fort folly that um you advertise? And she's like, oh, no, you have to go out the back gate and walk about ten minutes up the hill, and which which I did. And there was that folly that Davo and Turlo and Tegan are wandering around at the start of The Five Doctors. Yeah, I saw your picture of that and I was like, oh, yes, what a great place to be. Yeah, that was really, really good. And you can go up to the top of the little sort of mini fort and some some great views there. Um, Another place I've been meaning to get to really since I was 11 and for the first time when we visited London as a family and I was looking at the tube station maps and I saw a station called Perryvale and said to my dad, is Perryvale a real place? Yes. And, and look, you, you laugh, but I only discovered this year that Pease Pottage was a real place. So there you go. Oh, really? Pease Pottage sounds made up. <laughs> well, it does. It does. But I, I knew from JNT's um, autobiography, the uh, the audio version of it, I think he talked about sending a photographer and Bonnie down there to Pease Pottage oh. to get a photo with the sign. Oh, okay. So I, I knew it was real. I must have missed that. But yeah, look, I've been meaning to get to Perryvale for, for some time and this was the chance to do it. And so I looked up all the filming locations again on this on the Who Locations website, which which is fantastic. And mm. 
I first of all went to Horsenden Hill, which is where the big confrontation in part three of Survival happens, and that was really, really good. And then I went and found the playground where Ace is, where the cheetah person first kidnaps her, and that was really cool. And then I was on the streets. So, and again, as you walk around Perryvale, you just go, I, I know this place. I've... I've seen this place. This is familiar. Wow. Isn't that weird? It it is. So I found the corner where the TARDIS lands and they have the final shouting match. I found the street where the guy at the start is kidnapped by the cheetah person. And I did sort of find myself wondering, because it's, what, 30-something years ago since Survival was filmed there. There must be people who have bought houses in that street in the last 30 years. And every so often they look out of the window and there's just some bloke taking photos of their house and their street, and they must wonder what's going on. (laughs) Or opening a can of cat food, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that must be really, really weird for them. Um, But that that was really cool to finally get to Perryvale. Uh, Another one that I've been meaning to get to for a while and was really interesting to see how it had been filmed were some locations from Remembrance of the Daleks. Mm -hmm. So it turned out I was staying one night at a place that was slightly closer to uh, the airport for a, for a 7 a.m. flight I had the next day. And across the road was the building that was used for Coal Hill School in remembrance of the Daleks. No, really? Literally on the other side of the road. So <laughs> two minutes walk from me. So that was really good. So I got to see where Coal Hill School was filmed. Interestingly enough, roads that are meant to be just around the corner from Coal Hill School are in fact about half an hour on the other side of London. <laughs> Um, but I did go and check those out. So again, the roads around where Ratcliffe's junkyard are, the roads where the Daleks are sort of trundling along under the underpass and, and doing all that sort of thing. And, and again, roads that are meant to be some distance away are literally next to each other, but roads that are meant to be close are the other side of London. So I just find it fascinating seeing sort of how production teams make these things work with really disparate locations oh i get that feeling with mission impossible too tom cruise will be somewhere in sydney and then next thing i'm like no that's 30 minutes away actually 40 <laughs> 45 in peak hour <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah look absolutely anything that's filmed in parliament house i definitely like that corridor doesn't go there but um <laughs> and look two other quick ones one that i didn't go out searching for but again the who locations website i was using whenever you find somewhere and it's got the thing that says the nearest other locations to you geographically. And when I was at one of these remembrance sites, it said, oh, half a mile away is a Dalek invasion of Earth location. And I thought, well, it's it's not, you know, Trafalgar Square or Westminster Bridge. I've been to those. And it was, and I went and I found it and it looked almost exactly the same as it did in 1964, the location where the Dalek comes out of the Thames at the end of part one. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I guess there wouldn't be much to change that. It's just uh, some, some mud and some water, I guess. Yeah, it's some mud and some water under a bridge. But so it, it, it looks the same. That was particularly special for me because I have met a long time ago, back in 1991, I think, I mm. did meet Robert Jewell, who was the actor inside the Dalek case that uh, lucked out in getting the job of being the guy inside the Dalek that comes out of the Thames on TV. And then a year later was told, look, mate, you've done it once, you know how to do it. So uh, for the movie, you're doing it again. <laughs> so uh, that that was really cool. And the final one, I was going near Waterloo Station and I thought, 
it's one of my favourite scenes from my favourite story. I've got to go and check out where the plague happened in uh, yes. in the Silurians. And again, the location website said, you know, the, the, the inspector stands at the end of Platform 2. And I went to Platform 2. I was like, yep, this is exactly where it all happened. And then yeah. you go outside and it just looks like exactly like it was. So, look, I've, I've gone on a bit, but just really, really fun to see all these different locations. And as I said, just to sort of see how they all work, some were really familiar, particularly something like the Ivor Ryan, where, I mean, Rob, we've been watching that since we were kids. Yes. And and it just feels so wonderful and familiar. But but the pista resistance of my Doctor mm-hmm. Who experiences, mm-hmm. I was sitting on a tube station, I was on my way to the National Portrait Gallery, and mm-hmm. into the train walked, I am very, very sure, Bonnie Langford, and sat <laughs> down across the carriage from me. Oh, wow. Did you say anything? I I didn't because she walked in. She had her earbuds in. She was looking okay. down at her phone, and and I was I thought I kept trying to make eye contact because I thought if I can make eye contact, if we can sort of smile at each other, and then I've sort of there'll be a moment where I can say, "You're Bonnie Langford, aren't you?" And then mm. you know see how she reacts. If she's friendly, maybe get a photo, or if she's sort of like, yeah, "Yes, please leave me alone." You know, I'd leave her alone. But I don't like to just interrupt people. Yeah. So I didn't want to sort of like, you know, tap her on the shoulder and excuse me, I can see you're busy, but are you Bonnie Langford? I, I just don't have that in me. Um, yeah. So I was, I was desperately trying to like make an excuse, but she was only there for about three stops and then, then got off. But um, that was my close encounter of a third kind. Oh, wow. And all of this, folks, is only one small part of Dave's trip. Every time I looked at Facebook, Dave was like, Dave's in Greece, Dave's in Eastern Europe, Dave's in Iceland. You went all over the bloody place. I did. It was a very busy, it was a very intense four weeks. Um, part of me found it perhaps a little bit too busy. Um, oh, really? Particularly when I was doing the North Coast 500 around Scotland, which I've, I really wanted to do. But for sort of seven days, as you can imagine, that was out, big drive, find your next pub, unpack for a night. get you know, And so, you know, you're in a different bed and breakfast every night for seven nights. You're driving mm. every day and spectacular scenery just spectacular scenery and um but 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 you know sometimes very very narrow roads through very you know um not rough terrain but you know they're, 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 they'll be outback tracks we'll call them outback tracks mm-hmm. um you know so you know great driving but but intense but you know would i've cut anything from the program would i've said oh, i won't go to athens or i won't go to iceland well no 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 Fantastic. Top that, Rob, with your short topic. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll try, Dave. Um, A long, 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 long time ago, listeners, I helped crowdfund a book on Unbound, which some listeners may know where you can crowdfund books, which promised to, to pull together all the best bits of Douglas Adams' personal papers that he left to his college in the UK in his will. Something like Oh, 60 boxes of stuff has been sifted through. And in this book that's emerged, 42 The Wildly Improbable Ideas of Douglas Adams, they've come to life. It's quite a large book, as you'd imagine. It's almost coffee table sized to enable the manuscripts to be presented in a very readable way. Although the accompanying text also repeats the content if you don't want to sort of read the typing or the handwriting and you can sort of read it as, as normal print. And initially, Dave, I thought I'd just go to the Doctor Who chapter and see what's in there. But I've actually started it from the beginning and I'm just marvelling at things Adams wrote at school. I mean, these are things that are obviously written by a child, but the ideas and the imagination behind them and the humour 
is already there. You can just see how it was him, you know? So if you're a Douglas Adams fan, do look this up. There's only one chapter on Doctor Who, so I'd you know, suggest buying it if you want to luxuriate in his whole life, not just his period on the show. But yeah, I'm finding this a really fabulous, fabulous book. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this, but I'm very, very keen. I, I, you know, really enjoy Douglas Adams' work. I, I throw his quotes around in the office sometimes, and some people get them, and some people just look at me, I- either thinking that I'm a genius or just bemused. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, look, that's that's really cool. I'm going to check that one out. Cool. Uh, speaking of books, um, second short topic from me, and that is that as usual when I travelled, I took some Virgin books with me to reread because they're just the perfect size and weight for travelling. I don't you know, want to carry big hardbacks around when I'm trying to traipse a suitcase around Europe for four weeks. You don't want to take the Douglas Adams book on holiday, let me tell you that. Okay, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, my credit card says I'm not going on holiday again for a while, so <laughs> not a problem. Um I did finish Love and War, Conundrum, and Head Games whilst I was in Europe. Love and War is one of those books that everybody says is one of the classics of the range. And and look, it is. It is very well written by Paul Cornell. It's the book that exits Ace for the first time. Interestingly, on this occasion, I found all the stuff with the Doctor and Benice and the Houthi really, really interesting. The sci-fi plot with the monsters really cool. Um, the Ace falls in love stuff with Jan or Yan. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that. Uh, I didn't get a lot out of and it did sort of feel a little bit like sort of love at first sight because we need her to leave at the end of the book. Um, so that part was weaker, but that was really good. Conundrum was brilliant. This is a book I knew I enjoyed back in the 90s, but reading it again, it has shot up my list of favourite New Adventures. It is very funny, very clever, just so well done. The The conceit is that the Doctor basically arrives in this town where a whole lot of bizarre fictional sort of stuff goes on. Like there's the adventure kids with their dog Carson that go on adventures and there's the local witch and there's the guy who used to be a superhero and all of that sort of things going on. And it's written from the point of view of um, a writer, and I won't, say, I won't say who the writer is, but the writer is narrating this book, and mm-hmm. it includes some lovely little sort of you know in jokes, like one part where at the end of a chapter a character walks past the TARDIS and looks mysteriously at it, then disappears into the shadows, and then the writer says there was actually no reason for him to do this, but I haven't mentioned him for a while, so I wanted to remind the audience he's still there. <laughs> and so there's just look really good stuff like that. And then the Doctor starts to break the narrative, as you'd expect. So really, really good. Really, really enjoyed that. And I did jump, therefore, to the sequel, which is Head Games. Uh, it is famous for being the new adventure where Mel comes back. And um, I actually thought that was really, really good. And a large part of this book is about Mel, who travelled with the fun-loving, sometimes weird, but, you know, boisterous but fun sixth Doctor meeting the seventh Doctor and Ace, you know, and uh, Roz and Chris, you know, this this, this Doctor who wipes out civilizations and travels with women who carry guns and, you know, deals with baddies, and she's like, who who are you? Yeah. Who are you? And so that's a really good aspect of that book. Conundrum's by far the pick of the three, but I enjoyed all of them. Oh, very good, very good. Uh, You've tempted me to, to read Conundrum now. I've obviously got all of them. I should pull it off the shelf and have a read. I'd love it if you did. I've got one quick short topic to finish, Dave, and that's that Arc Beetle Press 
have written to us to say they're not sure if we've heard of their work, but they publish a number of books set in the world of Doctor Who, such as using the Seventh Doctor companion who you just mentioned, Chris Quedge, and the Minister of Chance from Doctor Who Death Comes to Time, which is something we've uh, reviewed in a past episode. And I didn't know these spin-off novels were being made. Did you, Dave? I had heard a little bit about them. Okay. Um, I think I'd seen some stuff on Twitter about some people who were going to be doing reviews, but that's about all I've heard. Yeah, yeah. So uh, neither of us have read these, dear listener, but I did want to boost the signal for them. Information about their releases is at arcbeetlepress.com, and Beetle is spelt like the Beatles. Oh, okay. Well, that's easy. Mm. (laughs) Well, we are now on track to get to our main topic, which is violence in Doctor Who. Mm. This is a topic that I think has a lot that can be discussed about it. It is a... It is a controversy that has surrounded the show pretty much throughout its 60 years. And Rob, I'm going to start the topic by asking you a question. I haven't told you what this question is, but I want your 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 gut reaction to this question. <laughs> yeah, I can see on the run sheet, opening question for Rob, but there is no question there, so I haven't had to prepare for it. Yeah, so gut reaction, Rob. Okay. Is Doctor Who a violent show? No. Interesting. <laughs> Do you want me to say more? Well, I think we're about to spend half an hour or so saying more. So okay, let's let's explore that and come back and see if uh, if if you feel the same at the end of it and why others may or may not disagree. Sure, sure. So look, let's start in the nineteen sixties, and I'm going to put it to you here, Rob. Mm-hmm. Is the nineteen sixties the most violent era of the show? Well, I think the Hartnell Doctor likes to get into a blue from time to time. Uh, and there's the suggestion in multiple stories that if he has to knock someone out or maybe even kill them, he will. But I don't think the 60s owns violence, Dave. I mean, sure, in the war games, we have one of Pat's execution squad getting shot and he drops to the ground, you know, this scene holding his chest and there's yes. blood oozing through. And blood is something you rarely see in Doctor Who. But when we get to the 70s, and we'll talk about the 70s later, This has done bigger and better there. So I'm not sure the 60s owns violence, but there are some violent moments in it. Yeah. The Doctor, I think, is definitely a lot more violent and indeed ruthless in the 60s. There are the notorious Hartnell examples, him braining somebody with a spade in Reign of Terror, him being willing to you know, kill a caveman in an unearthly child. He yeah. takes great delight in fisticuffs in the Romans. But but also, you see the Troughton Doctor, he's the one that's willing to sort of wipe out entire armies when it suits him. He's the one that's willing to go around zapping ice warriors with a, with a great big light gun. <laughs> but the other thing is, where they do violence here, it feels quite real. Hmm. So something like the Aztecs, when Ian's fighting for his life with Ixtar, it feels like a proper fight and as though there's there's stakes involved. I think people get killed in a much nastier sort of way. There is a level of sexual violence in the Hartnell era particularly that I don't think you see anywhere else in the show. I mean, we basically have not quite on-screen rapes, but close to in the Hartnell era. And we talked about that when we did our episode on the Time Meddler. Well, Perry might disagree. Well, Perry's an interesting case, yeah, where we, we can talk about it. Um, you know, you've got Vasor and, and, and the and not even implied intent of what he wants to do to Barbara. So mm-hmm. I, I think 
it's not quite as big and brash as other eras, mm-hmm. but there's a there's a real edge and realism to the violence in, in, in this area, and particularly that performed by the Doctor, that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm just going to make to put, put a flag in the ground here and say, this is the most violent era, full stop, end of conversation. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to open with that question because I think for an era that a lot of people don't watch a lot and probably wouldn't think of it as being like that, there is a lot of it. Yeah, and look, as, as an aside, I did come across an article. I was doing some research for today's episode. I came across an article by Mike Kenwood in Celestial Toy Room, issue 484-485. And in that, he puts together the kill count for each Doctor. And oh, yes. both, yeah, both Bill and Pat are very high on the kill count. They're not at the top, but they're very high, thanks largely to their Dalek stories like Master Plan and Evil, where they're bumping off Daleks in their thousands. And I think this is what you might have been referring to earlier. You know, they have no qualms about bumping off whole armies. So based on the numbers, the, the black and white era is certainly suggestive of a lot of killing, a lot of killing, which goes hand in hand with violence, really. Yeah, and you look in the Trouton era at a story like, for example, Tomb of the Cybermen, you get somebody very nastily electrocuted, you yep. get somebody shot with a cyber gun and they writhe and smoke comes out of their body, yeah. you get you, you, know, you get the Cyberman who's attacked and the, the, the foam machine oozes out, and, um, and that, that was talked about in the press at the time. Do you think it's because it's black and white that people don't notice it as much, like when you're watching something in, say, the Davo era or the Colin era and green gunge comes out of a Cyberman, uh, you can go, oh, wow, that's really gross. But when you have that scene in the war games where the guy on the execution squad gets shot himself and the blood is oozing out, but because it's in black and white, it's just like a darker colour on a dark tunic. And if you're maybe not paying attention, you don't see it, but it is there. I think that that's a big part of it, absolutely. I I think it's also that... In our minds, black and white says old. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It, 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 it says back then, and so it feels maybe a bit more distant and a bit safer for us now watching it. Whereas mm. you know the eighties just feels like our childhood. Whereas the sixties, <laughs> like that's 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 another era. Yeah. And and I do wonder whether that's why it was allowed to get away with it. Were, were people just not really paying attention to what was happening on? television at that stage where things that you could do on the stage just transitioned happily to television and and you know mary whitehouse and various lobby groups just hadn't quite got their act together at the time yeah well you think of the kids of that era and what they'd be playing out in the in the playground they'd be playing with guns they'd be tying each other up you know <laughs> be doing all sorts of awful things and the parents were probably like that's fine so you know maybe the tv was reflective of that yeah i i think i think that's the case i think that We'll come back to the question, is it the most violent era? But it's it's a lot more violent than people remember. For sure. Absolutely. We then get into the Pertwee era, Rob. Mm. Now, there's a lot of action in the Pertwee era. Is it is it really violence or is it TV violence? <laughs> well, define what you mean by TV violence, Dave. So, so TV violence to me is when it's very obviously people acting. So, mm-hmm. for example, unit soldiers run into the castle in The Mind of Evil and there's a lot of people shooting a lot of guns, but nobody really screams. There's certainly no blood. Everyone just sort of, like the playground, grabs their chest and goes, ah, and falls over. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. the, the, the brigadier, you know, 
bang, 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 people fall down. It's playground violence, isn't it? Well, uh, yes. Yes, to answer your question. I mean, on the topic of unit, I'd say, although it's mostly hammy sort of stunt work that doesn't have you covering your eyes and thinking, oh my God, that's just terrible. It's still representative of violence. You know, blokes firing rifles, submachine guns, pistols all over the shop. The brigadier solves problems with force. That's all violence. You know, when the Silurians get blown up, that's violence. But it does have the message that, well, that's not the way to do things, folks. Um, so it's it's certainly a different kind of violence to the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly compared to what's to come. That, that said, I, I think we've perhaps both got some examples of where the Pearl era does get a little bit nasty. The chair in The Terror of the Autons is surely a famous example. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's, I think made worse because this isn't somebody just falling over quietly and, and moving themselves off set. The actor who who's playing it spends a couple of minutes suffering. Mm. There's, there's really time to go, this is scary and this is happening slowly. And, and I think that's where the Perwi era does get a little bit gritty when it takes its time. Mm. I think the, the, the plague in the Silurians is another example where it sort of takes time and it's slow and it's creepy. And and also another example I just wanted to put out there is the Green Death. Not because I think that, you know, giant papier-mâché maggots in green slime is itself necessarily all that much more scary than anything else. Mm. But because the way that the story is written allows enough time for the characters to be scared and for the characters to be sad. Mm. And that scene where Joe talks to Cliff about Bert the Miner dying and, you know, he basically risked himself to save her and Cliff gives her that speech about he's the only one that'll ever be. It's right to grieve. Your grief is natural. Your grief is special. You know, that that's something that Who doesn't do a lot. But I know as a kid watching that, suddenly it hits you mm-hmm. in, in a way that the Brigadier going bang, bang, you're dead doesn't because it's it's fast paced and you move on and you, sort of, you don't really notice as a kid but when people talk about well he's dead and he's gone and it's sad that as a kid you go oh hang on this mm. is sad yeah that's almost an rtd kind of take uh but we'll get to him in a moment we, we I guess. will absolutely get to him yes um if i return to that article by mike kenwood and i promise i won't keep doing this but i did note down that the third doctor according to mike kenwood notches up 3513 kills in his era or an average of 146 deaths per televised story this number though is helped greatly by the assumption that at least 3000 sea devils are bumped off in the sea devils um, <laughs> of course he's not really bumping off 146 people per show you know the numbers can lie in that respect but certainly the pertwee era is no stranger to violence and and again the sea devils few thousand die in that yeah and do you think the Perwi era and, and the third doctor particularly get away with it a bit more because there is a lot more lecturing about non-violent solutions as you pointed out rob mm. although we have the brigadier going around shooting everybody you also have the doctor going brigadier that's not the solution yeah and do you think do you think that softens the blow effectively i think it does i think it almost shows the audience that it was in there in order to have the message you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it does. I think it's an interesting balance and I think reflective of television at the time as well. Mm, definitely. Do you want to kick us off with what comes next, Rob? Well, it's it's the Tom Baker era, Dave. 
And, <laughs> and now we get to the second part of what I was talking about earlier. While the the War Games has that bloke getting shot and the blood drips through his fingers, the Tom Baker era has a story like The Brain of Morbius, where you have Solon shooting Kondo. And while there's maybe a little less blood than in the War Games, the way Kondo's shirt is ripped open and some blood actually shoots out, and it's in colour, to go back to what we are talking about earlier, colour and black and white, I think it makes it worse than what we saw in the War Games. It's quite extraordinary, especially when people talk about Colin's era, and we'll get to Colin's era in a minute. This is just as bad, and no one says a thing about it, relatively speaking. Um, and I'll comment more on that when we get to Colin. But yes, look, the, the Tom Baker era, there's just one story I've pulled out. There is some colossal violence in the Tom Baker era. Yeah, I can remember being a kid watching the Talons of Wang Chiang for the first time. And that, that scene where you see the Peking homunculus, and it, there's a close-up of the hand, and you just see the blood just dripping down the hand. Mm. As a kid, that was a moment of, what? Oh, yeah. this, is, this is a bit nasty. This is a bit, that's blood. That's proper blood. Ooh, okay, I'm not sure I'm, I'm quite comfortable here. So I, I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot more violence and there is a lot more blood, and that's what contrasted with the Perwi era. But I think where the Hinchcliffe era is most memorably violent and nasty is that body horror and that suffering. Mm. I, I think you, you think about Namin being killed at the end of Pyramids of Mars Part one is they bring Sutek's gift of death to all humanity. And he's just screaming as steam's rising from him and he screams more steam and he's burning and there's the sound of sizzling flesh. Mm. You know, that's that's pretty full on. You get the scene that was cut from the Ark in space. Philip yeah. Hinchcliffe's first proper story, you know, as a producer. And, and he's already having to cut a scene, not because Noah looks too horrible. He's happy to show Noah, you know, turning into a Wirren and, you know, covered in alien stuff. He's happy to show that. But but Noah saying, Vira, kill me, please kill me, yeah. was, was the bridge too far. Yeah, I can live with the bubble wrap, but the, <laughs> the, the dialogue is, yeah, the dialogue sells it. Yeah, and, and that brings me neatly to the moment in Doctor Who that most scared and upset me as a kid and it, and it's it's this and then daylight underneath and that's the seeds of doom the mm. scene where keela is turning into the crinoid and he's begging to be released and he starts to do the whole you want me to die you want me to die and you're just seeing this guy who is helpless just helpless as his body is taken away he's, he's basically dying in slow motion Mm. And that's that's really really violent, really really nasty, and and that's I think where the show perhaps did go a little bit too far. But again, Hinchcliffe cut the end of that scene because the scene goes on where the butler brings him in the raw meat that Mister Chase wants him to eat, so you know to build him up nice and big and strong. He's like, no 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 no. The scene cuts there, but originally as filmed, eventually Keeler gives in to his cruel instincts and starts eating the raw flesh. Oh, wow. Now, Hinchcliffe had the common sense to cut that. <laughs> Shades of Delta and the Bannermen there. Uh, yes, except it's, you know, done for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, when I was, again, boning up on this topic for this uh, podcast, Seeds of Doom also has the scene where 
I think half of fandom think the Doctor breaks a guy's neck, but he doesn't. No, he just sort of gives him a bit of a, a stage flick or something, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he does. He manipulates the guy's neck, but it's to knock him out. But I swear, half the articles I came across said, you know, violence in Doctor Who, the Tom Baker Doctor breaks a guy's neck. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. But I suspect a lot of those were written back in the time when you uh, couldn't pull out the VHS and watch it. Yeah, that's true as well. <laughs> so people were going on the memories. And look, Tom's... Tom's very careful about the way that the Doctor does violence in this era. A lot happens around him, but take the Seeds of Doom, which, look, it's a wonderful story. It's one. It's my favourite Tom Baker story. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's incredibly violent. I mean, you've got the mincing machine there, and I'm not, yeah. not, and I'm not talking about Harrison Chase. <laughs> um, but you got that. Thank you. I, I did get that. <laughs> um, but, you know, when the Doctor does go to punch the chauffeur, Tom plays it very carefully. He does play it as... A moment of hesitation. You can sort of see him pulling his punch a bit before he does do it. And then when he carries the gun around, Sarah says, you'll never use it. But they don't know that. So, you know, there is that sort of reinforcement going on there. Tom, that said, did love to have his cake and eat it too. And sometimes I think was just being temperamental. Uh, Famously, the cliffhanger part one of Stones of Blood uh, had to be reworked because Tom refused to push... Romana over the cliff, even though it wasn't the real Doctor, it was the image of the Doctor that Cesare was projecting. He said, no, 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 I can't be seen to be violent to the companion. That would upset the kids at home. One story later, the cliffhanger of part two of Androids of Tara, he's happy to smash someone who looks like Romana over the head with a, with a, with a scepter. So, you know, not, not consistent, um, but, but certainly I think Tom was aware that the Doctor couldn't necessarily be all that violent, which... Brings us neatly to the deadly assassin. Oh, yes, please. Take it away, Rob. Well, what can we say, Dave? I mean, this is the one that sent Mary Whitehouse right over the edge with with the violence in this one. It's probably the story that got Philip Hinchcliffe moved on, and it's probably the story that had (laughs) some of the most genuine ramifications for the show's direction compared to almost any other. This was the one where the the BBC had perhaps been warning Hinchcliffe for a while, borderline Phil, borderline Phil, and then it's like, no, you've crossed the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned the Stones of Blood there, a fairly lighthearted story for the most part. You've got funny lawyer creatures and Amelia Rumford and Canine, and then you have two campers brutally slaughtered as <laughs> as the screen fades to blood red. Yeah. And again, as a kid, that was a like, wow. Yeah. When we we rewatched that for some uh, reason recently, Dave, did we do the the season overview, or we did something where we had to watch that? Yes. And I was reminded of that just in the past, I don't know, year or so. It's, it's extraordinary that moment. <laughs> It was. So, you know, the 70s, a lot nastier, a lot grittier. TV, though, was becoming like that. You got a lot of those hard-boiled detective shows. You got a lot of horror um, and, you know, cinema was definitely doing it. So I, I get the influence, but I think The Fourth Doctor mostly was, was careful about how he took part. Yes, and yes, that's fair. And I think it is when he gets personally involved in something like Deadly Assassin that people see lines crossed. And then we move into the Sayward era, Dave. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that on the running sheet here and, and, and in your comment just then, we don't call this 
the Davo era or the Colony era or the JNT era. We call it the Saywood era mm. because, let's be honest, a lot of the violence in that era of the show is defined by Saywood. Partly, I think, because he believed that a certain amount of 80s-style action-adventure was exciting and it's what the audience wanted and it's what he wanted to write about. I think that's that's pretty clear. But he's gone on record a number of times and said his view is, if you're going to show violence, don't shrink from the consequences. If you're going to show somebody being shot, show that it's nasty, show that it hurts, show that it kills somebody. If you're going to show somebody being tortured, show that it's nasty mm. so that kids learn and appreciate that that's the consequence of violence and therefore it shouldn't be mimicked. Now, I don't know psychologically whether he's right or wrong, but that was his philosophy. Yeah, and look, that's a close bedfellow to if you're going to kill someone in a story, make sure they stay dead, yeah. uh, which is something I believe in. Yeah, because we, we death discussed is a, often, yeah. Yeah, it's a very big, serious, final thing. And if someone is killed, you don't do it for a cheap trick. You, you do it to, to have some real meaning. But yes... Uh, both Davo and Colin get a, a story script edited by Saywood. And I think Davo probably gets the best deal out of the Saywood era. And whether that's just because Saywood gets more and more out of control as time goes on and he keeps pushing the boat out so that by the time we get to Colin, the violence is just worse, or whether Saywood was being pulled along by the times and even if he doesn't think so, he was reacting to the times. Who can say? Maybe a combination of those things. But Davo's stories, I think, feel like Doctor Who adventures on the whole, whereas the moments of violence we remember from Colin, the the acid bath, Lytton's crushed hands, the cyanide stuff in Two Doctors, Davros's hand getting shot off in Revelation, <laughs> that's all from Colin's era. So, I mean, while there are some some bits of violence in Davos' eras. There are some gross-out things, you know, the vomiting Cyberman and Five Doctors, things like this. I think Colin gets the worst of it. Yeah, I think an important distinction here is that in the Davison era, the Doctor is less involved in those moments, whereas in the Colin era, he's all over them. Uh, you think about something like Earthshock, which is, of course, Saywood's big breakout story. He'd written a presentation before, but Earthshock's the one where he, you know, really arrived as a a Doctor Who presence and stuff like the death of Schneider in that where she's just gooified and then you have her colleagues you know looking for her walking over this just sort of you know gooified body with a little name tag on top of yeah. it you know that's that's a violent moment that's a nasty moment but but the Doctor's a long way away uh, Caves of Androzani yes the Doctor gets beaten up a bit but most of the real violence in that is you know the character of Stotts for example and the Doctor's nowhere nearby um, the bit where Stotts has got Krelper you know dangling over a cliff forcing him to take a cyanide pill the Doctor's not involved Yeah. whereas the examples you gave about the Colin era not only is the Doctor there the Doctor is generally perpetrating them yeah, well, I missed out Colin blowing away Cybermen with a cyber weapon. Yeah, and, and look, that that I'm less worried about. And I think that if we're going to give Troughton a pass for wasting Ice Warriors, you kind of have to give Colin a pass for wasting Cybermen. Mm. And I think, again, a distinction can be made between violence to people and violence to monsters. Nobody ever complains about the Doctor wasting the Borad because the Borad's clearly a monster. Um, I don't think people really care that much about the Doctor wasting the cyber controller because Cybermen are monsters. And, and the interesting one that blurs that line is Shockeye. 
you know, Shokai is not a human. Shokai is an Andrigum, and Andrigums are the monster of the story. They're big, scary things that are really strong and have inhuman strength and inhuman characteristics. And it's just that the makeup isn't quite as big. You know, they're not in a rubber suit. So mm-hmm. we kind of don't think of them as a monster, even though the story treats them as such. So suddenly the doctor killing him is bad because he looks like a human. Yeah, yeah, good point. Dave, I'll, I'll throw something up here. I, I think it's fair that Colin's era gets defined by violence. Would you agree with that? Yes, that is definitely a way that people define his era. Okay, but I'll stick in the thought here that if Colin had a longer era maybe it would have balanced out a bit more. For example, back in the Tom era, we spoke about, you know, Solon shooting Kondo in Morbius. And indeed, in that same story, the Doctor kills Solon with cyanide gas. This is all pretty horrible stuff. But we don't define Tom's era by that. Similarly, if if Colin had a bunch of seasons and the things that happened mostly in season 22 didn't happen in season 23, 24, 25, if he was making those seasons, would the result have been different? Yeah, I I think it would, and I think that it actually would have happened. You look at Trial of a Time Lord, and there's definitely a tone down of violence there. Um, The Mysterious Planet has a couple of icky moments, like the death of um, Katrika and uh, Broken Tooth is a kind of a nasty moment, but it's also kind of, you know, it's it's, it's that adventure moment. It's what you expect from from action television in the 80s. Um, But a lot of the nastiness isn't quite there. Uh, Mind Warp is the big exception. That's very nasty and very violent, and what it does to Perry, you're right, is horrible. Terror of the Vervoids... Yeah, it's it's halfway between the two. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely remember as a kid, aged about six or seven, the Vervoid Thorns were quite a nasty and scary thing. Yeah. Um, but by the time you get to the ultimate foe, it's all comic book violence. You know, you can throw big harpoons at people and then laugh about it. Yeah, yeah, very different. So it was, it was going down a path, but um, I don't know whether I agree with Saywood, but I give him credit for actually having a philosophy and, 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 and having a rationale for it. Right or wrong, he said, no, this is this is what I'm doing and why. And, uh, okay. Who's, yeah. to, who's to say he's more right or wrong than others? Yeah, well, look, I've said many times on the show, it's a big, dangerous galaxy out there and you can't treat it all the time like a, a farce or a romp or, you know, some sort of camp runaround. People do die, horrible things do happen. You have to show that sometimes, but you don't want the show to be that every week either correct i think i think that's right and that's a nice segue into the mccoy era and another question for you rob Mm -hmm. is the mccoy era the one that gets the balance most right yes yeah i think so too and i'll tell you why i think it gets it right for a kid's show in quotation marks you have the kangs in paradise towers but they're the nicest cleanest street urchins you could ever hope to meet They're not like something out of Mad Max. They're like something out of a senior high school production of something, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Some musical. You can smell the shampoo and the the impulse (laughs) body spray on them, Dave, you know. Yeah. They're they're not about to cut someone's throat and give them a Columbia necktie or something, you know. (laughs) Uh, Or or the Bannermen. We mentioned them earlier. There's a lot of posturing and eating pretend lumps of meat, but they're a bit more panto villain than anything else. And although these examples bring their own issues and a bit of eye-rolling... I think it suits Sylvester's era and is more keeping with Doctor Who was 
was meant to be at that time. So, yeah, I think Sylvester does get the balance right. Yeah, I, I think the Hamervores are a wonderful monster and they're scary, but they don't really do a lot of violent things. There's a lot of stalking and a lot of sort of looming over victims, but you mm. don't see them being particularly vicious. No. Battlefield, there's a lot of people getting shot and a lot of explosions, but you don't really see blood and guts. Um, although you do have that moment after the battle where Bambera looks at the the face of the young knight commander. There is that just moment of, look, this was all fun and games and everything, but, you know, people died and this isn't a good thing. Yeah, and and look, <laughs> it's funny because Unit is in that story as well, but we're back in the Pertwee Unit days, you know, with yeah, yeah. people, you know, running around and doing ridiculous flips and you know, all of this sort of stuff. It, it's it's not campy, but it's 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 not entirely realistic. I'll say that much. No, and, and finally you get to Survival, which is perhaps the most violent story in the McCoy era. But even then, they're very careful about what they actually show. There's a lot of cutting away just before the knife goes in, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And and at this point, insert the obligatory reference that in Australia, this coincided with Doctor Who being shown at a, at a child-friendly time slot. It was no longer a nighttime thing. No, it was on at 5.30 in the afternoon as yeah. part of kids' magazine programming. And it fit. It fit perfect. And it did, because, again, it is, it is that balance of adventure and action and excitement and some implied violence without yeah. being nasty. Yes. So, look, we've gone through the classic era in a lot of detail, because I think there's a lot to say about the classic era. Mm. And we've also watched it a million times. And we've also watched it a million era. times. Yes, that's true. <laughs> We get to 2005, and mm. fair to say that the TV landscape has changed considerably by now? Yes. It's funny. I've made the comment before, and, and I remember we had this conversation a little bit when we did our um, episode on queer Doctor Who and talking about LGBT sexuality in Doctor Who um, mm. a few years ago now, that yeah. with the exception of a few stories in the Hartnell era, the classic series basically shies away from depicting sexuality as much as possible. There might be an occasional peck on the lips, a little bit of sort of, you know, love at first sight across the dance floor sort of thing, but it didn't really do sexuality. It did violence a lot. Yeah. Whereas New Who is happy to have everybody shag everybody. Yeah. Um, that's not a problem. You can shag everybody. You get gay characters. You get lesbian characters. You get, you know, companions just, you know, off for a one-night stand. But violence... It's actually very rare. And, and one thing that brought it home to me was when I watched The Stolen Earth again a little while ago. And there's a scene there where the Daleks kill a family, including children. Um, mm -hmm. It's not done quite on screen, but you have a family that goes inside. They said, stuff you Daleks, we're going, we're, we're going inside. And the Daleks blow up the house. So yeah. it's, it's pretty clear that, that family was, was killed. And I thought, wow, that's, ooh, that's really, really out there. Mm. And it stood out, and it wasn't particularly violent, but it stood out because of just how straight a lot of the series is. Likewise, some of those scenes in Family of Blood, where you've got the scarecrows walking towards the machine guns and the, the kids crying, and everybody's suddenly like, oh my God, this is what war's really like. Oh my God. Mm. That, that stands out in an era that's normally very, very cautious. Yeah, I, I was giving this some thought. Could it be as simple as the difference between European and American content. You know, American content's always famous for showing violence, but, you know, Jesus Christ, don't show a, a topless woman, whatever you do. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yep. you know, whereas European content might be more the reverse. I know 
growing up on a diet of foreign film on SBS back in the 1990s, it always seemed European cinema had naked people all through it and not as much violence at all. And of course, these are generalizations with the move to cable and streaming. We now have shows from both sides of the Atlantic, you know, totally flip the board on this stuff and you, you do get american shows with lots of tna and stuff but it does leave me wondering whether there's just this british inclination maybe to more titillation and less violence yeah maybe maybe but i think it's also generational as well yeah um i i think that we've i mean we i mean let, let's face it um without wanting to go too far down this rabbit hole we we mentioned earlier um about Bottom Gun, and you know, we grew up watching a cartoon about a robot that had a machine gun in its ass, and 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 went around, you know, with great big violent battles, and you know, yeah. people would die horrible deaths, and 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 all that sort of thing, you know, stuff like Battle of the Planets, you had, you know, Monkey, which you know had some pretty cool violence every episode. That's a long way from the very wholesome, educational, and well thought out and researched television that kids get today. I think a lot of parents would never let them kid, you know, as a six-year-old or a four-year-old watch Astro Boy as we did. Really? I, well, I, they're not shown. They're not shown. You know, that, that, that morning we're getting ready for work, put the kids in front of the TV. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not Astro Boy anymore. It's, you know, Peppa Pig. Yeah, you, you're right. I mean, because I don't have kids, so this isn't really top of mind stuff for me. But I know of things like Peppa Pig and I know of things like Bluey. You know, I don't watch them, but I know of them. And yes, they they are quite different to Astro Boy shooting bullets out of his ass, aren't they, Dave? They, they are, and we've actually got a couple yeah. of letters on that topic, so it'll be in, <laughs> interesting, to come to, interesting to come to that. Breaking down the new series by era, I've got a couple of generalizations to put to you. Mm-hmm. RTD loves the emotion of a one very personal death. Chib- mm-hmm. Chibnall loves a massacre. Yeah. Well, we did have the Chibnall death count when we used to do hot takes. We did have the Chibnall death count. He he loves to have a high body count. He loves to wipe out half the universe, in fact. Um, you yeah. know, reg- regularly, that's a thing that Chibnall are. There's a lot of things blowing up, a lot of things being killed. And again, in the numbers, it sort of um, softens it a bit. You know, that old mm. thing about one death's a tragedy, a million deaths is a news story sort of thing. Yeah, statistic. A statistic, yeah. yeah, that's it. So uh, I think that Chibnall leads into that, whereas... RTD isn't a particularly violent era. It's very family-friendly. It, it, it's a lot more sexual than Doctor used to be. But occasionally he knows just to throw it in. And sometimes he really leans into it. Midnight, I think, is a really good example where there's a lot of sort of... Not not violence in terms of people beating each other up or people you know with, with blood everywhere, but just some scary things happening. And then that moment after it's all happened of the Doctor saying... Does anybody know her name? Mm. And just reflecting on the fact that a, a, a real person has died here and that we need to be very, very aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the attitudes to violence are similar to the, the writing styles of the three different showrunners overall. I mean, RTD is the character-driven writer guy. If he writes a death, wow, you're going to feel it. Moffat the i think i'm the cleverest writer in the room and you know well he probably is but you know <laughs> yeah yeah he doesn't have to say to it. be fair yeah who who'll write a death and it might work or it might not it might be genius it might be pure cheese it could be any of these things and then chibnall who always felt like he was hanging on for dear life and you know sending the production team first drafts to work with and his approach is just very big very marvel movies uh, just throw everything in something will stick here's the script 
I've got to write the next one. As a result, I think Moffat's era is probably the most balanced of the three. He can hit you in the feels at times, but at the same time, one of his doctors, in the form of Smith, scores incredibly high on that killing list I mentioned earlier, thanks to a number of his stories. You know, he helped take out a planet of Cybermen, for example, or tons of silence get killed when they're revealed on Earth, and so on and so forth. So Moffat is probably the midpoint, and ironically, he's the midpoint of the three showrunners so far. But they all are different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and an interesting thing with Moffat is that when he did kill a companion, even though he undid it a couple of episodes later, but when he did kill Clara, Capaldi went on TV sort of a couple of nights before and did obviously a very prepared semi-scripted interview where he said, yes, now this is going to be a sad episode of Doctor Who because, yes, this is the one where Clara's going to die. And, and it was almost like saying to the audience, we know we can't just kill a companion without giving you warning. We need you all to be very aware of this and very ready and, and you know, parents be ready to have the talk. It, it felt as though they had to manage that, which is a huge contrast to we don't want anyone to know Adric dies because we want everybody at the end of that episode to go, oh, shit, what just happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very different. But, you know, Dave, in, in the modern era, I, I had a good think across all the stories and I struggled at times to think of some really purely violent stuff. There is violent stuff. Clara getting killed, for example, is violent. But stuff like people's faces turning into gas masks in the empty child or Satan showing up in the Satan pit or the conversion of people into ice warriors that aren't ice warriors in the waters of Mars or the cyber conversion in World Enough and Time. This is scary stuff. This is body horror stuff. I'm not sure it's quite violence per se. When we have things like big space battles, that's quite violent, but it's on a massive scale that's not personal. So... You know, as I thought through it, I thought, is is the modern era actually that violent if you sort of narrow down violence to being a very particular thing? Yeah, which I think brings us neatly back to where we started this conversation. Oh, good. Where, where my, <laughs> that my wasn't answer, deliberate. <laughs> no, no, you, you did that very naturally and very perfectly. So well done. Um, well, thank you. Point, points, to, point, points to, what house are you in? Ravenclaw. Oh, me too. Points yeah. to Ravenclaw. Very good. Look, my, my answer to the question, is Doctor Who a violent show, is, I think, on balance the same as yours. No. It's an adventure show. It's sometimes a scary show. But for the most part, it isn't a blood and guts, beating people up, violent show. And, and I think that is why when it does arc that up, people notice. When the Hinchcliffe era goes that way, people notice. When the Doctor's beating up, People in the Reign of Terror, people notice. When Colin's throwing people in acid baths, yes, I know he doesn't throw them in there, it's an accident. But you know what I'm saying? Like, people mm. do notice. These are these are aberrations. And as you said, Rob, I think it's good that we have these aberrations. I think it's good we sometimes push the boundaries and do different things. But is Doctor Who consistently, as part of its raison d'etre, a violent show? I think you're right. I think the answer's no. Yeah, and at the start, I said I'd, I'd elaborate more, and that's basically it for me. When you when you look at the width and the breadth of Doctor Who, violence isn't happening all the time, and there's far more that's not violent. So, no, on, on balance, it's not a violent show. That That's where I was going with that initial thought. So, Rob, look, before we go any further with our conclusion, we've had 
two emails about this topic and coming from, uh, as you flagged earlier, some perspectives that perhaps we don't have. And um, I'll read the first, you read the second, then let's have a bit of a quick conversation about what they've added to the topic. Sure, sure. Uh, so the first is from our friend Mark at 42 to Doomsday. Hello, Mark. He says, Dear Robin Dave, Since its inception, Doctor Who has, on a number of occasions, particularly during its original run, been deemed to be too violent. Viewers were often quoted as saying, I used to watch it behind the sofa because it was scary or frightening. But I can't remember hearing, I used to watch it behind the sofa because of the violent acts perpetrated towards or by the Doctor and his companions. Growing up in the late 70s, I remember as an eight and nine-year-old watching TV shows such as The Professionals with my parents. Bodie and Doyle would regularly beat the crap out of other people. (laughs) Did this make me go out on a rampage in my local village punching up all and sundry? Not really. Did they stop me watching it? No, they didn't. My parents had no objection to me watching Doctor Who and never questioned what was being shown on screen. On most occasions, it was the Australian government or the ABC who deemed it was too violent for myself and many viewers. Doctor Who was screened at 6.30pm, which was roughly the same time slot as the UK. I grew up in the 80s where I was exposed to the era of the video nasty and violent and high body count action blockbusters. The violence in these films seemed more real. Maybe it was the practical effects or the situation seemed more believable than the action movies of today where CGI extravaganzas and rapid intercuts make it look so glossy that it dulls the violence and often cartoonish, which reduces its plausibility. My then 12-year-old wanted to watch the original Robocop movie. I accidentally showed the unrated version, Bad Dad, (laughs) and I could see his reaction to the more violent and traumatic bits of the movie. I asked him if he wanted me to turn it off, and he insisted to keep watching it, but I gave him that choice. Mm. My children were never particularly interested in Doctor Who, Poor fathering there, Mark. Yeah, terrible. (laughs) But on the rare occasions, I would put on some of the safer choices, such as Revenge of the Cybermen, Death to the Daleks, and steered away from stories such as Seeds of Doom or Caves of Androzani. But this was mainly from a body horror shock perspective, and we never delved into New Who primarily due to my violent reaction towards it, which I didn't (laughs) want my kids to see. However, when we do watch some classic Doctor Who or 80s movies such as Predator or Rambo, First Blood, I'm sure shocked at some of the violence and think to myself how did i ever watch this when i was their age Mm. my view is it's up to the parents to deem what is suitable for their kids to watch they know them best but sit down and watch it with them engage their reaction and check in with them and if all else fails press the off button speaking of violence keep punching all the best (laughs) mark from 42 to doomsday Oh, very good. And, and and my response to that is when the first six Doctors were out there killing or having violent things happen in their shows, out in the garden, I hinted at this earlier in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, kids were out there playing with toy guns, shooting each other. But as the 80s went along, that stuff did start to become frowned on. I had cousins who weren't allowed to play with, quotation marks, war toys, Dave. And of course, when they'd come to my place, they'd be grabbing the replica M16 water pistol, the grenade launcher, the sawn-off shotgun that I had, you know, and, and yeah. running around with me like maniacs. They they loved it. They bloody loved it. But, but the point is, the attitudes of parents saying no to war toys or whatever their, their stance might be was absolutely a thing that was coming into vogue in the late 80s. Maybe it played into Sylvester's era in some ways. 
you know, along with other thoughts like don't hit your children and, and all of that sort of stuff, uh, you know, a number of topics related to violence that, you know, you did have people saying back in the 60s or 70s, but they were few and far between. By the late 80s and into the 90s, such people were being taken more seriously and it was becoming a much more common thing that, no, I'm not going to give my kids guns. No, I'm not going to smack my kid. All of that sort of stuff was going on in society. Yeah, and I think the show reflects that. Um, Rob, you've got a second email on the topic. I do, Dave. Uh, this one is from your co-host on the Space for a Blake 7 podcast, uh, Richard. And he says, hi, Rob and Dave. Very interested in your topic for this month and got me thinking about my experiences. Now I'm a dad. My son saw the series fairly early. He was around five to six when I started back on the Doctor Who Club of Victoria committee for the two to three years leading into the 50th anniversary. And because I was watching a lot more Doctor Who at the time, he was definitely exposed to it. I probably first saw Who around the same age, but didn't really become a devoted fan until a year or two later when the show moved into the regular weeknight slot. I did make a point of showing him a few stories so he could see the different doctors, etc. But I do remember selecting some of the more innocuous ones so he could both follow them and wasn't thrust straight into Caves of Androzani or Seeds of Doom. <laughs> did Richard and Mark collaborate on these letters? That's a, that's a scarily similar uh, thought to Mark's. It is, yes. We went through stuff like Time Warrior for Pertwee, Robot for Tom, The Five Doctors, and the first Dalek movie. So, death and some violence, but not Hinchcliffe slash Sayward levels. We did watch some harder stories later. I don't think the violence or anything else ever bothered him. He went through Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and superhero phases around the same time. More that who's just something he never really got into, even the newer, flashier and faster series. My daughter had zero interest in who from day one, so there was really no dilemma there. Thinking back, I guess the choice of not showing him what I knew were probably nastier stories was maybe parental overprotectiveness, although being more aware of kids' programming since having my own family, the times and attitudes have changed. It's probably a function of the increased focus on media for kids and the emergence of dedicated channels and more recently streaming, as opposed to just parking children in front of Looney Tunes and repeats of old US sitcoms that were served up as a lot of the kids' programming in the 1970s or the glorified toy commercials of the 1980s. <laughs> in the old days, families likely had one or at most two TVs, so as kids you either had to sit in front of whatever was on one of the four channels regardless of content or go and do something completely unrelated. So we're probably exposed far earlier to more adult viewing and content, even if it was seeing repeats of war movies or John Wayne or Clint Eastwood taking care of bad guys in the Saturday Night Westerns, but arguably saw more news and current affairs programming because of this. I don't remember Doctor Who ever really scaring or upsetting me as a kid, but I can remember my parents sending me out of the room a couple of times when whatever they were watching got a bit spicy, although I think this was more for sex than violence. Now, my kids can immerse themselves in Disney, Netflix, or even the Nickelodeon channel non-stop, while even taking the iPad into the toilet and without seeing a single frame of the news. The saturation of TV and media in general these days makes for far more disposable and ephemeral content, so a lot of series, not just kids shows, just seem to drop off the radar after a few years as they become dated, less relevant, or present now undesirable attitudes. Star Wars up to the ante on visual effects, and there's really been 
a lot of pressure on genre TV and media to keep up since. My son even now comments that the older Marvel movies look dated. Looking forward to the chat from Richard. Thanks to Richard and Mark for sending those in. And I think it's interesting that they've both raised the point that as parents now, they're very, very cautious about letting their kids watch yeah. episodes of Doctor Who that would just put on at 6.30 and in some cases 5.30 in the afternoon and we would have been allowed to watch at that age without anybody blinking. Yeah, yeah. And and as I say, I don't have kids. So, you know, I sit here and think, oh, what are you talking about? I'd, I'd show it to them. But maybe once I had a kid and, and, you know, saw the child being born and saw them going through their first birthday, their second birthday, their third birthday, my attitudes would be completely different to what I let them watch. But as a single man, I'm like, yeah, just showcase Vandrasani, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, you can you can show out your old Jurassic Park, sure, why not? Absolutely. Yeah, so look, it, it, I think that does confirm our contention that attitudes in society towards television violence did change a lot over the sixty years of the show, and and the show has reflected that. Absolutely. So look, we've had a wide-ranging discussion on the topic of violence in Doctor Who. Uh, a bit of audience feedback already. If you've got thoughts on this, we would love to hear them. Rob and I do not pretend we're the experts on this topic at all we're just sort of you know chewing the fat as we normally do and if you think we're wrong right or something in between let us know yeah we're just these guys you know just these guys you know (laughs) (laughs) uh rob we've got an email from peter cavanna yes peter cavanna hello peter he writes uh, a suggestion classic doctor who where episode one is excellent but it goes sadly downhill after that i think this is a suggestion for the uh, list makers dave that's a very cool suggestion peter and that's going in the hat very good we have an email here from daniel haywood hi guys from london first of all where have you been all my life i can't (laughs) buy me dinner first (laughs) i can't believe it's taken me seven years to discover the best doctor who pod out there we didn't write this just to be clear Over the last week, I've been listening all day and night to your videos, all the way from your Series 10 reviews, and I'm finally all caught up. So just wanted to show my appreciation. You guys are awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Whilst I'm here, I have a list maker idea. Mm -hmm. I was watching the Shakespeare Code the other day, and I'd forgotten just how gruesome the death of the bloke in the cold open is. They rip him to shreds for no reason. And that's my question for the list makers. What are your top five most gruesome deaths in Doctor Who? Well, after doing research for tonight's show, I've got some ideas. <laughs> Absolutely, we've got some ideas. Look, that's another one that we will put in the hat, and hopefully over the next six to 12 months, uh, Daniel, you'll hear that one come out of the hat as well. Marvellous. Thank you for the lovely comments. Next up, we have an email from Blue Box Bill McCann Third over in the US, who recently gave us a topic for the List Makers, Dave. He did. He says, Hello, Robin Dave. In episode 291, Dwayne raises a number of questions during your discussion about what back in the JNT days was known as stunt casting and about a similar practice in New Who referred to as diversity casting. Here in America, Doctor Who began and finished its original run on PBS long before the days of DVDs and streaming video, which is to say any behind-the-scenes content we US Whovians might have enjoyed during that era would have been an occasional BBC-produced promotional video that was shown during a PBS pledge drive, but little else. Learning more about the show back then wasn't all that easy unless you had a subscription to DWIM or perhaps access to back issues, plus there was no turning to the internet because it was still becoming a thing. 
If you were to travel back in time and ask me what I think about JNT's stunt casting, your question would have been met with a blank stare. Why would an American fan who can only watch episodes long after their original air dates even have an opinion about a British TV producer casting high visibility British actors in a TV show that is quintessentially British when I've never seen or heard of these actors? Throw the fast return switch and ask me about diversity casting in 2023 and you'll get a response very similar to my opinion about stunt casting but with the following proviso. Do I need to know the gender or sexual proclivities and preferences of an artist, any artist, to assess whether they are good at their craft? I don't. I understand how diversity casting can broaden a fan base, but I also understand how it can divide and diminish that same fan base. See the rise and fall of Bud Light. There's no simple way to conclude feedback on such a sensitive, often politicised topic, but I will say that to engage in political discussion on one of my favourite podcasts is just plain bonkers because so many fans tune into Doctor Who to tune out of politics. I believe discussions about diversity, merit, politics, values and the like are best left between individuals. That being said, I enjoyed your discussion about the fires of Vulcan as much as I enjoyed the audio drama itself. To its credit, Big Finish gave Colin's Doctor a new lease on life, permitting his character to evolve as it was originally intended on TV, just as it gave Bonnie's Mel a fresh start in audio, despite being stunt cast back in the day. I look forward to her returning Doctor Who just as I look forward to your next podcast. Until next time, Blue Box Bill McCann the third. Thank you very much for that email, Blue Box Bill McCann the third. It's great to have people come in and tell us that they disagree or they've got a different take on things. As we just said, Rob and I here, you know, we're, we're just two guys, you know, and <laughs> we're, we're, we're just talking. We don't have all the answers. And yeah, that was a really, really it was a really cool piece of feedback. Yeah. And it is, I think, one of the hallmarks of our podcast that we don't do a lot of political type stuff. In fact, we shy away from it, um, which is different to some podcasts, shall I say. No, as I've said before, I you know work very long hours most days doing politics. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is tune into Doctor Who and do more. Yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> but... We've been watching other stuff, Rob. What have you been watching over this last month? Oh, some quirky viewing for me this month, Dave, which I think you think every month's quirky for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with the most uh, mainstream of them all. Uh, I watched the Wham! documentary on Netflix and, and cards on the table. I was never a big Wham! fan. I don't own any music by them, but I was always intrigued by them as a kid as all the girls at school in the 80s loved them and I didn't really understand them at all. So getting the whole story on how... They were at school together and then started writing music and all that. It was really, really cool. Meanwhile, I've also watched Feria, The Darkest Light, which is a Spanish horror thriller series on Netflix, which has sadly been cancelled since the first season went out. So you get to the end of the eight episodes and you never find out what happened. So basically, it's a small Spanish town. 23 people have just died. They've stumbled out of a local mine. They're all in the nude and they've all just died. You know, how has this happened? we go from there i think stranger things fans might like it i mean it's not like stranger things in terms of it doesn't have like a childlike sort of cast or anything but i think if you're into that sort of horror type vibe of stranger things you might like this and finally i'll mention midnight diner which my wife and i are quite addicted to it's set in a diner in shinjuku in tokyo which opens between midnight and 7 a.m and you have customers come through in each episodes some are series regulars some are one-off characters and they all have different stories to tell often there are challenging issues in their lives and they talk about them over a meal 
and across the 25 minutes it all works out somehow you know maybe with advice from the guy who runs the place he's the chef he's the bartender he's the owner of the diner maybe in other ways uh the acting i will mention is what i would assume japanese soap opera acting is like so it's a bit fluffy you you won't mistake this for i claudius but my wife and i find it really easy viewing and we knock over a you know 23 minute episode each night and it's just really pleasant that's very cool. I'm glad you mentioned the Wham documentary because I checked that out as well before I went away. And mm-hmm. look, I'm, I'm a few years younger than you and I also grew up in a household where the radio was sort of arc-welded to ABC AM. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't sort of have the FM dial exist in our house. Um, so for me, I grew up with um, George Michael being the controversial figure George Michael. Sure. If he was in the news, it was because he'd done something that at the time was seen as a little bit dirty, a little bit seedy, and sort of, you know, he's a bit of and we don't talk about him anymore, except when we want to sell papers. And it was fascinating to really go back and just appreciate what his body of work was like. And there were songs that I was sort of aware of, but I hadn't really put them together in my mind as being part of the Wham mm. uh, collection. And so just seeing hearing them all bang 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 i've gone wow that that actually is an incredible body of work i need to learn more about this guy so yeah that was really cool yeah and also a couple of guys who you can tell still remained great mates and loved each other even though wham came to its natural conclusion and george michael went on to be solo the other guy andrew ridgely was like yeah cool this is a natural progression and and it wasn't a nasty split or anything like that yeah, it was really, really lovely. So that was a good doco. I recommend it if you haven't seen it. Hmm. What have I been watching? Not as much as I've been traveling. I did see Heartstopper Season 2 when it dropped, and I thought that was just wonderful. I I thought the characters didn't behave all the time like television characters are meant to. They, they behaved like teenagers do mm. there, there were times when you thought oh this is the bit where they forgive them and they're like no bugger off wow and i was like wow that that is what a teenager would do um you know there were a couple of moments that sort of really hit me quite firmly uh in the chest um particularly when the character that i sort of most related to got his comeuppance um right. doesn't go any further down that path but they did film some of it in paris and i was obviously in paris a week later so that was really nice i am continuing in between other series to uh, work occasionally through Titans on Netflix. And uh, amusingly, you know, I'm somebody who knows about a lot of TV stories, particularly Doctor Who and Blake Seven very, very well. And I can, you know, bore for my country on those topics. Mm. But watching something like uh, Titans, um, a friend of mine at work, Carson, is very, very into the DC comics. You know, he's got the Batman collection, you know, his collection and all the rest of it. And he takes it very, very seriously. And so I'm going into work in the morning going, oh my God, this just happened to Jason Todd. And he's like, yeah, yes, I know. <laughs> or they've just shown who the Red Hood is. Wow. He's like, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's good. I'm, you know, I'm so excited about these revelations that, you know, probably 20 years old for, for DC fans, but that's very cool. So he's just there like, oh, bless Dave. Yeah. Bless. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, look, you mentioned that you watched uh, today's episode of Ahsoka before we came on to record. Yes. As soon as we turn the mic off, I'm going to watch today's episode of Ahsoka. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I think we've agreed we're going to do an alternate galaxies on it, Rob. Absolutely. I mean, we've both been throwing comments out about it on social, but I think there's still so much more to, to talk about. And we still don't know how it ends. There's still another uh, couple of episodes to go after today's. So, yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. Excellent. So, look, you'll get this, you'll get a list makers, and maybe, maybe we'll aim for the week after that to do a... Ahsoka Alternate Galaxies. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Fantastic. Keep an eye out for that before our October episode. Now, we've covered a lot today, Rob. We've done it in under 100 minutes, which is always our aim. Yes. But speaking of next month's episode, uh, we have a poll coming because it is time once again for a deep dive into a season as voted by you. Uh, Rob, let's tic-tac as we usually do. What's your first nomination for season or series that we are going to dive into next month? My first nomination, Dave, Classic Season 12. My first nomination is Classic Season 8. Okay. My second nomination is Modern Series 9. Ooh, mine is Modern Series 4. Ooh, wow. Okay. So, Season 8, Season 12, Series 4, Series 9. Which one do you want us to watch over the next month? And then talk about the poll will be up probably about a day after this episode drops. Yes, it will. Fantastic. Well, look, it's been great fun, Rob. It's been good to be back in the chair. Uh, I hope to see a few people at the Melbourne Katie Manning event in a couple of weeks' time. What have you got coming up, Rob? Oh, Dave, I've got so much coming up. I've, I've just recorded a... I don't know if I... Oh, maybe I can't mention. I've recorded with another Doctor Who podcast for one of their episodes, which is coming out uh, in a little while. Maybe I shouldn't... Maybe I shouldn't mention that, actually. So, this is, my mouth is sealed. Oh, well, that's something for us to hang on to for the news. But look, time to get out of here. Thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. I've been Dave. I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>